Hebrews chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 1, and this is the word of God. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works that were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day, and from all his works, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, today after such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Would you then also turn with me a little further in your Bible to the book of Revelation. Revelation, I want to read from chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And if your edition is the same as mine, the, sub- the subscription, the superscription is the lukewarm church. And we continue to hear the word of God. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyes salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to page number 886, Lord's Day 31, 
question and answer 83, 84, and 85. Lord's Day 31, you'll find that on page 886 of the back of your Psalter hymnal. And here we read as follows. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does, the preaching, how does preaching the holy gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel, the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and, personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. This the church does confess and, and confesses to believe. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we have found it in the creeds and confessions of the church, may God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. A book that has had a tremendous impact on my own understanding of ministry, and a book that was at the same time required reading in my preparation for the ministry, is a book entitled Preaching with Confidence. Preaching with Confidence, subtitled, subtitled The Power of the Pulpit, written by a certain Dr. James Dane. It's only a small book, 80 pages, and should be required reading not only for seminarians, but also for every single office bearer, and even every man and woman in the pew could benefit greatly from this little book. It's written in simple, easy-to-read language, and I personally have been so blessed by the insights of the author that I have regularly loaned it out to others to read. I've had to replace it several times, either because it simply got worn out or because it was not returned to me. That little book articulates in ever so clear language the purpose and the effect of gospel preaching. It gives a scriptural basis for the whole matter of preaching and it argues that preaching is so much more than simply communication. 
Dane argues from scripture that preaching is ever so more than lecturing or even teaching. I referred to this book again in this past week as I prepared this sermon. And as I read that book, I confess to you that again, that as I meditated in my study, and that as I read this book, I personally experienced much inner turmoil and dissonance in my own heart and conscience. I struggled. My struggle was threefold. Firstly, it is the burden of my own pastor's heart that the truths here presented in this Lord's Day, dealing with matters of preaching in relation to eternal life or death of those who hear, have all but been forgotten even among people of the Reformed persuasion. It is the burden of my own heart that a key and crucial element pertaining to the very life, I'm talking eternal life, of local congregations has faded into an obscure antiquity. That element is the relationship, the connection between preaching and ecclesiastical church or church discipline, or if you will, men and women in the pew no longer understand the connection between preaching and church discipline. Any kind of discipline is considered antiquated and out of date within our culture. In some instances, it is even being legislated as being illegal. It is virtually against the law to discipline even your own children, and that is troubling, especially since it is an obligation laid upon us in Scripture. However, what is even more troubling is that the world is beginning to influence the church. I think it can be clearly shown that in this area, the world has been allowed to creep into the church. And most, in most churches and denominations, discipline has fallen on hard times. It is thought that discipline contradicts and violates the message of love which the church is called to preach. But that's not the language of the Bible. We're being told that church, that the church must preach love and show tolerance in the sense that we are to show respect for one another's feelings and we have to leave every judgment of wrong or right, true or false, good and evil up to the Lord. That now is the proper attitude, we're told. That is the proper attitude of humility that must be evidenced by the church and we're told. And so out of necessity, church discipline is looked upon with a jaundiced eye. That prevalent attitude within the Christian church disturbs me deeply because it is the language of the secular, unbelieving world that is not the language of our Lord. Secondly, I am fully, I am further sorely troubled in that it is my firm conviction that unless the matters here under discussion are recaptured, rediscovered, believed, and implemented, churches corporately and believers individually are, com are concretely, although perhaps unknowingly, hindering the work of the Holy Spirit and are in fact preventing the so necessary revival and renewal of the Church of Christ. It is the burden of my own heart again that unless there is a return to the fundamental, fundamental truths given us in this Lord's Day of our catechism, the churches and individuals will remain stagnant and impotent. And although numerical growth may be seen, and even though church sanctuaries may be filled to the rafters, even though new buildings or additions will need to be added to hold the masses, any real authentic spiritual growth will not be possible unless God divinely intervenes. And thirdly, 
having come to a better understanding of the power of the pulpit through the insightful writings of Dr. Dane, I myself was troubled personally as I came to a better understanding of my own awesome obligation in the pulpit. And I struggled with my own inadequacy in such a daunting and holy, awesome, holy task. It became the burden of my own heart that my obligation was not so much to convey information in my sermons, but to speak the words of Christ himself after him in such a way that it reaches the heart of the men and women who sit in the pew. Recognizing my task is to be an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to rescue souls from eternal condemnation through my preaching. It was often told me during my preparation for ministry, Zastra, any sermon that you preach, if it does not reach the heart of the men and women in the pew, then you have failed them. The little book I mentioned was very helpful for me in pointing out the way, also the way to revival as that relates to this confession under our consideration this morning. And I want to quote, forgive me, I want to quote a few paragraphs which I believe will be helpful for us in leading us into an understanding of Lord's Day 31. I beg your indulgence for just a moment, but let me quote from the introduction to this book where Dr. Dane writes, and I quote, the report is out that the renewal of the church comes not by preaching, but by such activities as fellowship, prayer, Bible study, especially in small groups in which Christians share their personal love and concern with each other. Usually the smaller the group, the more effective the sharing. Sharing hopes and fears, faith, faith and failure is the new formula for a returning of the spirit and the revitalization of the church. Instead of summoning her members for hearing the proclamation in the great congregation, many evangelical Christians sincerely believe that Christians can gain as much or much more from talking with one another about their religious experience, end quote. What has happened, according to the author, is that preaching has fallen on hard times. To many people in the pew, preaching is seen as just another way, another form of communication, a type of communication equal in status and equally valid as, for instance, prayer groups, Bible study, or church education programs. That things happen from the pulpit or in the pulpit that happen nowhere else is not understood. The preacher is now seen as just another Christian who may have some special talents in some particular training, but he comes without any particular authority. The pulpit then is placed on an equal level with, or sometimes even lower level, than other methods of communication, communicating the gospel. And in the process, pulpit preaching loses its unique significance. In many churches, the pulpit is made to be portable, and they are erected not in sanctuaries, but in multi-purpose rooms. And although the buildings are packed, the author correctly observes that when a pulpit is on the decline, then the church is on the decline, despite even an increase in numbers. He argues that when preaching is in crisis, then the church is in crisis. And both crises stem from a failure to understand the precise 
nature of the authority and the power of the divine word of God preached. Allow me just a little illustration. Be patient with me this morning. In a particular church, for instance, one Sunday morning, as the minister climbed into the pulpit, a small boy whispered into his mother's ear, Mommy, there's God. We may find that amusing. However, the young lad had stumbled on a concept that contained more biblical truth than he could even ever imagine. The preacher, of course, is not God. However, the boy may be forgiven since the preacher does and should sound like God. For in, an, in all faithful preaching, unlike any other method of gospel communication, God himself is present. In faithful preaching, God is speaking through the lips of the human agency. What we need to recapture is that in the church of Christ, the pulpit is where the action is because that's where God is. Christians once again need to become convinced that no one may remain on any pulpit unless he is able to say, thus saith the Lord. That claim can only be made without any presumption by those who have been properly called by God to speak on his behalf. And that is a prerogative granted only to a select few, since God has determined to speak through preacher. That mystery is the mystery of the pulpit. And until that truth is recaptured, and until we return to the, to the Christ teaching when he sent out his disciples to preach and enjoin them with the words saying, he who hears you hears me. And until we become reconvicted of that scriptural given, churches will continue to decline and languish spiritually. And it is now in that context of the power of the pulpit that I want to administer God's word to this morning using as my theme, the keys of the kingdom. We will examine first of all, the discipline of the word of Christ and then secondly, we want to hear of the discipline of the love of Christ. So the keys of the kingdom, the discipline of the word of Christ and the discipline of the love of Christ. <clears throat> Congregation, when we speak of discipline in the church, then we immediately begin to think of the elders going on serious visits. We think of public announcements against sin and possible excommunication to follow. But the catechism here alerts us to the fact that discipline, in the true sense of the word, begins long before any consistorial involvement. Follow this with me. The catechism speaks here of keys, two keys, the keys of the kingdom, namely the preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline. And by these keys, members of the congregation are placed in the kingdom or it is declared that they are standing outside of the kingdom and if not changed will remain outside of the kingdom forever. Obviously serious things are given us here this morning and we will be well served to pay close attention. The first key of the kingdom according to the catechism here is preaching. And it is through preaching that the spirit exercises the discipline of the word of Christ in the church. Capture this with me. The entire congregation through preaching is set under the powerful discipline of the word of God. 
The whole church is formed, shaped, guided, and governed by that word. Imagine then with me the task of the preacher. He is essentially a disciplinarian in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And every Sunday again, he must instruct the congregation in the way of the Lord. He must use that key of the word. And with it, he opens and closes the kingdom of heaven. Every sermon then becomes a test. Has the key been properly used? Have the people been disciplined? That is to say, has the preaching served to teach the congregation the way of the Lord? And it goes without saying then that, 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 that this, out of necessity, places certain restrictions on the preacher. A minister may not come into the pulpit with his own opinions or with certain articles he has read, for example, in the Toronto Star or the Hamilton Spectator or, or McLean's Magazine, but, but he must always be able to say, Thus saith the Lord, for it is only the Lord's word which is binding, and the minister's own opinion or the opinion of human authors have no binding authority. Then also the preaching must be bold and clear. That is to say, it must be understood first of all. Never should it be possible that the congregation leaves the sanctuary confused about what God has had to say in the sermon. There must always be a solid ring and an urgent appeal when the word of God is proclaimed. Note the words of the catechism. Proclaiming, meaning setting forth with authority, and publicly testifying, meaning openly attesting to the truth. Proclaiming with boldness does not mean belligerent or arrogant. No, it means to speak with authority and conviction. And notice with me now that the Catechism indicates that this proclamation is an opening and a closing operation. We notice that preaching opens to believers and closes to unbelievers. And both of these elements must be evident in any true preaching. The preaching is, according to our Bible, a double-edged sword. It hardens and it softens. It comforts and it admonishes. It builds up and it breaks down. We may even say that that, that comfort comes first. The first key in preaching opens. It opens the kingdom through the message that, that we are justified by faith in Christ. In other words, the message preached is Christ crucified in the flesh to atone for the sins of flesh. Every Sunday again we are, are exhorted to believe this. Every Sunday again the minister may say, your sins are forgiven you if you will what believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that kind of preaching, believers in the congregation have the kingdom of heaven opened for them. The minister then stands before you and speaks the words of God himself after him. When he says to you, accept this and live, but reject this and you are already dead. We begin to hear it already. We begin to feel it already. The other side of the sword correctly then does the catechism also add that other element, that, the, that of closing the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on unbelievers. Note well, 
We do not read that that condemnation will or may come to you. No, it rests on you. It's yours already now. You are already dead if you continue to reject the gospel message given you in the preaching. Remember with me from a previous lesson that man comes into the world dead in sin and trespass. That's how he is born. Condemnation was already yours and consequently condemnation remains with you if you refuse to believe the message preached. We need to note that significance. And that now, congregation, if I may, is the bare bones and essence of all preaching. Two roads are set before the congregation, the narrow and the wide. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be transformed from death to life and be saved. Or reject the gospel preached and remain condemned to hell. Time and again, this self-same message with great urgency is boldly proclaimed to the congregation. The message now comes. This message now comes to every man, every woman, and every child in the pew. No one can escape the power and the implication of that preached word of God. That preaching also implies more. Preachers are commanded to discover, rediscover treasures old and new from God's storehouse in the Bible. A lifetime of preaching will never exhaust the wealth of knowledge. And, and the preaching is to serve to bringing the entire congregation to a unity of faith. And it is to teach and instruct, or if you will, the preaching is to equip to equip the saints for the good work for which God has created them. But ultimately the message is the same. Christ crucified for sinners. Believe in him and be saved. The kingdom is open to you. Reject him and perish. The kingdom is closed to you. And that is done and accomplished through faithful preaching. Such discipline through the preaching of the word is where all the action is. It is there through preaching that life and death determinations are made every Sunday again. Here, people of God, from this very pulpit, here is where all of us as individuals and as a congregation collectively are set under the discipline of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Is it any wonder then that the pulpit was again restored during the Reformation? There too, under the influence of Rome, preaching had fallen on hard times. Pulpits were pushed aside, replaced by altars and sacrifices, liturgies and the like. People of God, capture this with me. Could it be? Could could it be that we are seeing a return to the former rejection of God's discipline in preaching? Today again, as I mentioned earlier, pulpits in most modern church buildings are designed to be portable. Ministers want to be more contemporary. They want to wander through the sanctuary as they speak to the congregation. The cry goes up, move the pulpit out of the way. Preaching is being replaced by stirring liturgies and moving emotional, unscriptural songs, praise and worship teams, sharing, communicating, plays and overhead projectors and worship leaders. We need to think seriously about the implications of such transitions in the context of what's being taught us here. The key of preaching is a most powerful tool. 
We've heard from God this morning from Hebrews 4, the same message that comes to us each Lord's Day. Today, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. That word will liberate or convict you. It never returns empty or void. We'll hear some more of that this afternoon. It never returns empty or void. That preaching word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing division between soul and spirit, discerning the heart and intentions of men. The word of God always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. It cuts deep. It either gives rest and peace with God or it, remain, or it makes hard and restless so that ultimately you will be driven out into the world. Imagine that, people of God. Imagine that with me. It boggles the mind, but faithful preaching will drive you on your knees to the cross or it will drive you out into the world. My dear saints of God, do you hear what's being taught us here? It is impossible for someone... It is impossible for someone to sit under the faithful preaching of the word of God and remain unaffected or indifferent. According to Isaiah 55, the word of God always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent by God. It softens, it hardens. In other words, faithful preaching will either soften hard hearts of unbelief or, 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 and, and drive men and women to their knees, uh, on their knees to Golgotha, or it will continue to harden their hearts and ultimately drive them out of the church, usually in anger and into the arms of the waiting world, and finally and ultimately into hell. And that is accomplished through faithful preaching. My dear, precious, precious people of God gathered with me, Serious business then, this business of preaching. And yet, despite the fact that the word of Christ is effective and always disciplines, yet there are those who refuse to submit to the discipline of the word. Such people then are then confronted with a second key of the kingdom, according to the catechism. And that second key, although different from the first, is closely related. The first key, that of preaching, is a general discipline, general in the sense that it is for everyone. Church discipline, the second key, is particular in the sense that it is intended for and comes to those in particular who refuse to submit to the discipline of the word. It is for those who visibly harden themselves against the word of Christ. It is, as the Catechism says, it is reserved for those who call themselves Christian, but who show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or in life. My dear people of God, these are hard things we have before us, and we need to discern carefully here. Church discipline must be exercised and understood, first of all, as a demonstration of Christ's love. Capture this with me. Does a loving parent allow their child to do as he pleases? Is it really an act of love to allow our children to do and to act as they choose? Do you really love your child if you let your little toddler play outside unsupervised, perhaps on the road? Do you really love your teenager 
If you let him or her stay out as late as he pleases to carouse, perhaps drink uh, with whom or he, he or she pleases? Of course not. The little one may suffer serious physical harm and the teenager will most certainly suffer great spiritual injury unless the parents intervene. My dear people of God, the book of Proverbs says that a father who truly loves his son disciplines him. The Bible further declares to say that he who does not discipline, in fact, hates his son and lets him go to ruin. Fathers, I ask you, do you know what your teenage children are up to? Do you take an active role in their life and their lifestyle? Do you know that the Bible speaks loudly and clearly against parents who refuse to intervene in the lives of their children? But, but the same is true for church discipline. When a consistory refuses to discipline impenitent members, then by that refusal, the consistory does not show love for church and kingdom. Rather, what is seen is a refusal to obey the Lord. And the risk is real that the entire congregation suffers or is even ruined because of the unwillingness of the elders to exercise church discipline. It is equally true, of course, that when church is confronted with an unruly or disobedient member, the temptation can be to quickly write them off with discipline, to shake the dust off our feet and smugly feel relieved that we have cleansed the church. But church discipline must be an exercise and a demonstration of the love of Christ. Even though hard words must be spoken, we are, called, we are called to fight for the soul of the impenitent sinner. And throughout it all, from start to finish, in this discipline process, the love of Christ must shine through. In this context, I remind you of the words of Christ in Revelation 3. We read it. The Lord says there to the church of Laodicea, I know that you are neither hot nor cold, and I therefore I will spew you out of my mouth. Hard words indeed. But Jesus adds the words, those whom I love, I discipline. If God did not care about the church of Laodicea, he would simply have let them go and washed his hands. But we hear his compassion when he says, I care and therefore I discipline because I love them. And the same must be true of us. If the church loves her members, if the church is concerned about the souls of her members, she will exercise discipline when called upon and she will use those keys with trembling hands and tears. Further discipline is also Christ's demonstration of love towards the entire congregation. If sin is allowed to reign in the church, unchallenged and unchecked, it will begin to affect and infect others. Sin is like a leaven, says the Bible. A little lump affects the whole loaf. One rotten apple, if not removed, can spoil the whole barrel. In other words, church discipline is an expression of love, first of all, for the sinner in order to bring them back into the fold. But secondly, it is also a protection for the rest of the congregation, again, out of love for the whole flock of Christ. When a sinner is not admonished for their sin, if discipline is not exercised against one who lives in sin, what incentive is there then to prevent the, co the coming generation from imitation? There is none. And therefore the church is called upon to demonstrate publicly that the kingdom is closed to those who refuse to reform and amend their sinful ways. 
the rest of the congregation needs to hear that the kingdom of heaven is closed to such people and they need to see that such people are actually removed from the rules of the church. The congregation needs to know and understand that the membership role, hear this well, the membership role of heaven and the membership role of the church is one and the same. And when one is removed from the roles of the church of from the church, then God honors that and God closes the gates of heaven. We need to understand that. Notice with me also the catechism does not first of all speak of consistorial involvement. No, we hear first of brotherly admonitions. We need also to understand and recapture that. When a brother or a sister offends or falls into sin, it is first of all not the consistor, but it's first of all our own obligation as fellow members to approach the brother or sister in love in order to win them back. We are called to fight. And my dear people of God, we Calvinists, we are very good at that, especially Dutch Calvinists. But we are called to fight for and not with one another. People of God, it is much too easy to talk about someone. It's also sinful to do so. We learn here of a necessary involvement of the congregation before the involvement of the consistory, not in gossip, but in a spirit of genuine, brotherly, humble admonition with deep love and endless patience, knowing that you yourself are also saved only because of the grace of God and that not because of the work of your own hands. If you are troubled by the conduct of a brother or a sister, Scripture commands you to go to them, to tell it like it is, but through a veil of tears in love, with trembling heart, and with your finger pointing to the scripture's rule for holy living. And it is only after that effort has failed, it is only when the brother or sister refuses brotherly admonitions of their brothers and sisters and continue to harden their heart, only then may the elders become involved, and then again only in love, and again in a battle for and not with the offending party. And then we still need to notice that excommunication does not yet immediately follow. It is a process, sometimes months, sometimes years, depending on the circumstances. Discipline is a matter of repeated admonition in a constant, consistent admonition and warning to rescue the soul. People have got serious things are given us here for our consideration. Unless you're much different from me, it causes us to shudder. We speak here of discipline and excommunication. We speak here of excommunicating not only from the church, but as we've heard also from heaven. We learn here of decisions made by the elders that in effect bar a person from going to heaven. That's what we understand by excommunication. The procedure for discipline is outlined in this Lord's Day. And we need to see that it is still a procedure of love and compassion. Think of how patient and how long-suffering we are as parents toward our erring and straying children. Your children are your most precious possession. 
and no parent who loves his child will carelessly cast them out of the family circle. But in the same way, the church, the elders and their members, they are to patiently rebuke, admonish, and prayerfully warn their straying members, always demonstrating the love of Christ. That loving patience comes to expression in three steps of discipline. And only when all of this fails to bring about the necessary repentance, only then may and must the church, through her elders, with broken hearts and trembling hands, pick up and use and exercise the keys of discipline in excommunication. There must be patience and compassion, but the command of Christ stands fast to also be firm and resolute. Those who persist in their sin shall be set outside of the communion of Christ. And now note well the words of the catechism. Such a one, the officers of the church, exclude from Christian fellowship, and God himself excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Exclude them from the kingdom of Christ. Hard words, congregation, are they not? excluded by God himself from the kingdom of Christ, heaven's doors closed to an excommunicated member. One can hardly bear to hear such words, excluded from the kingdom of Christ, but that door is not yet fully and finally closed, and therefore the catechism points also the way to reconciliation. The catechism speaks of again receiving such persons when they demonstrate genuine reform of their life and their ways. To that end, the church keeps hoping and praying for repentance. People of God, no one may be able to say on that last day, I was never warned. Oh no. If the church is faithful to its calling, the elders, if the elders supervise the preaching, first of all, sinners have already been warned twice every Lord's Day. When a hardened heart in the pew refused to be shaped and molded by the preaching, when the church then also in accordance and obedience to the command of Christ makes use in love of the second key of discipline, <coughs> hardened hearts will have to admit, I was warned time and time again, but I myself rejected the loving warning God sent to me via the preaching and the elders. And when the preaching is faithful, and when the congregation and the elders exercise their God-given obligation to discipline, then there is in the final analysis no excuse for any impenitent sinner that is ultimately lost. People of God, let us thank God that he has given these keys to the church. Let us also pray for and with those who are mandated to use them. Let us also admonish ourselves in the proper use of brotherly admonition and self-discipline. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Shall we pray? To the Lord such might revealing, let us come with reverence meet. And before our maker kneeling, let us worship at his feet. He is our own God and leads us, we the people of his care. With a shepherd's hand he feeds us, as his flock in pastures fair. And while he proffers peace and pardon, let us hear his voice today. Lest if we our heart should harden and we should perish in the way. Lest to us so unbelieving, he in judgment shall declare, 
ye so long my spirit grieving never in my rest shall share.